We actually had a women's pant that I did two years ago. We partnered with this girl, Bailey Campbell, who races Ultra 4. Um, she works on all her own rigs. Like, she builds her car, like, works on her car. So we wanted a pant for women that, that was functional, had real pockets, had, you know, all the stuff that, that you would want. So we launched them and literally just an okay response. You know, we probably sold 100 pairs yeah. in two years. I hired a new marketing agency last year. And they just reshuffled some of our ads. And there was a photo of this girl actually holding an axe in the pants. And they literally took off. Like we sold out in hmm. six weeks. And so we've been scrambling to get them redone. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming. I yeah. appreciate it. Of um, course, man. Thanks for having it's a, me. It's a little chillier here than I imagine <laughs> where you came from. It was. It's dropped down a bit. So I think it was in the 30s when I left. But um, yeah. It changes there so quick. I mean, it could be 80 next week. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually unseasonably kind of dry here. I mean, no snow. Normally, you come up here this time of year, we're usually got some snow on the ground, or even the mountains should be more white. It's yeah, not real uh, not real snowy, but when I was down there in Austin here a couple months ago, I was like, that that uh, that weather could be, it'd be easy. To, I could get used to that. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty nice. Yeah. The summertime was really hot. I think we had like... Close to six weeks over 100 degrees, which was brutal. That's brutal. Yeah. Are you from there? No. So I'm originally from California, from San Diego. Okay. Yep. So All we right. moved out there um, beginning of 21. Oh, really? So you're a COVID escapee? Yep. Yeah. My son was just struggling in school, so. Really? Yeah. Just all the math stuff or, or like just were you school at home? Yeah. Doing homeschool was just brutal. How old's your kids? He's 16 now, and then okay. my daughter's 14. So Yeah, so that's that age. Um, my kids are the same age, and uh, that's that age. Like, they're actually doing hard stuff at school. I mean, they're not right. drawing pictures anymore. <laughs> right. So if you're not getting instruction straight from a teacher. Yeah, he needs that interaction. Yeah. My daughter did okay. Um, she was still in sixth grade, but he just couldn't do it. So when you moved out there, were, were they right back in school in yep. Texas? Yep. So they didn't, uh, I think they were only out of in-person for like two months. Pull that thing up tight there. Um, um, yeah, two or three months, so. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it, isn't that whole deal so weird how like, it, it's just crazy how one one place is, is, is like an extreme one way and then another place is the extreme the other. Right. And it, we have that difference here. My, my wife was teaching school at that point. She was uh, a junior high teacher and- just in Missoula, um, the way they treated it and how, you know, enforcing the mask thing and they were doing, you know, worried about if they should be back in school or whatever. And then 15 miles out here in Frenchtown, my kids are going to school, playing sports, doing their thing. I mean, 15 miles away. Yeah. The, you know, and uh, they kind of acted like it wasn't really a thing here. I mean, they did the typical stuff in the beginning of it when everyone right. was shut down, but then... Once they kind of realized it was what it was, they were just right back to it. Yeah. I mean, that's why we moved to the section where we were at. Because my son would go play football um, against kids in Austin, and they would wear masks under their football helmets. Oh, my God. I was like, what is going on? Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. And, and they were struggling. Like, you could see that, like, the offensive linemen uh, were just, like, dying out there. Yeah, in Texas. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. It was wild. The, the, uh, the other thing is academically, like, you know, my daughter's in all these honors classes and all this stuff they're doing for college or whatever. And, right. Um, I, I look at her homework and it's like, 
reading Chinese. I don't even know. I understand it. But, you know, I was thinking back then, um, you know, here she is in school. They're pushing. They're still pushing her. They're they're in all these hard classes. They're getting all this instruction. Um, and a very, very small percentage of kids somewhere else could do that at home without interaction of teachers. Right. Um, and, and I was thinking then, like, you can't tell me those kids are going to be getting the same scores on ACTs and SATs in, in two years from then. Cause my, my daughter, I think was a freshman when that was, she's graduating. Yeah. She was a freshman in 20, um, you know, in 21 sophomore. So like that, that, those are hard years. Yeah. Well, and I think they didn't slow down the school curriculum. You know, they expected the kids to keep up. And yeah. I think that's, I think we're seeing kind of the effects of that now where kids are like behind still and they're pushing them forward. Yeah. You know? And and how many kids, uh, how many kids had, you know, uh, parents at home that, that were supportive and that could help them or could do whatever. I mean, uh, you know, quite frankly, even if you have two parents at home, it doesn't mean you can help them on that freaking high school homework. Right. Like I say, I can't even read it. And second of all, there's a, you know, a, unfortunately sadly there's a ton of kids at home that have no support whatsoever right at all i mean a lot of them are even just trying to figure out where they're going to get a meal right so how are they going to keep up on school with no support right well on the stress right like if your kid isn't keeping up the stress on that parent to be like what are you doing like constantly trying to like right oversee them you know i know that was a struggle in our house like my wife at the time would go over there and be like why you're on youtube like what are you doing on youtube and he would say, you know, well, one of my courses, they had us watch a video on YouTube, but then he would, you know, yeah, mess yeah. around and start watching other videos. Yeah, he's a kid. You're right. Yeah. So. Yeah, pretty pretty rare you got kids that are disciplined enough to really actually, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have. <laughs> no, no way. I was a terrible student. I would start watching, oh, look at that video, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's, you're on your video channel so there's all sorts of recommended videos i'm sure i I, I still can't believe like what kids have access to today that Ugh. we i never i never had right how old are you uh i'm th- wow 43 okay so we're about the same age i'm 42 so yeah um i can't even believe the responsibility honestly that kids are handed today with a with a phone and an ipad and computer right. and whatever and i mean with just a figure it out kind of mentality. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. We actually don't give kids enough credit for how well they manage all those distractions. Sure. I actually yeah. think a lot of times our kids are actually um, less distracted by because they're used to it than like adults, right? That didn't grow up with it. Now all of a sudden, there's all this you know at their fingertips. Oh yeah, and I mean the communication they have, and that's what I tell my kids is like, you, you guys have no idea the access you guys have to each other yeah. that we never had. Right. Right. Like when you get home from school, like you're home. Yeah. You I mean, if somebody calls you on the phone, like your house phone, yeah. you know, that's how, you know, like, Oh, come over to my house or we're going to hang out or you'd see them, you know, in the neighborhood. But yeah. And we never had cell phone coverage actually till I went to college in, in our town. So, okay. Like, yeah. Like you say, you, yeah. you, you and that's part of the reason also kids did sports and stuff is just an, a reason to stay after school and hang out with your buddies more right. and go do something on the weekend. I mean, that was your own interaction. Like you say, you got home and you're just home with your parents. I yep. mean, which is also why you saw a lot more kids out riding bikes and doing stuff. Cause that was your only way to go hang out with your buddies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was your time to, you know, get your homework done, take off. Yeah. <clears throat> you don't come back till, you know, it's time to eat dinner or whatever. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, it is. That's what I, and that's why, uh, the other reason why we moved to Texas, the neighborhood we moved into, like 
was a neighborhood. Like our kids would get home. A lot of their friends lived in the neighborhood. He would come home, throw his backpack down, go fishing. You know, there's a bunch of ponds in the neighborhood. And so yeah, I was like, this is rad. Like this is what I grew up with. You know, we lived in a very small community and we play hockey in the streets and all sorts of stuff, you know, roller right. hockey, or whatever, and play hide and seek throughout the entire neighborhood and just mess around. So where's your neighborhood in California, not safe for kids to go out in or, um, so it, it's still, if we would have lived in that same neighborhood I grew up in, my mom actually still lives there. Um, really? and so my kids would hang out there, but a lot of families moved out of that neighborhood and they all like everyone kind of aged up to where now it's grandkids kind of hanging out randomly and not a bunch of small fan, like young families living there with young yeah. kids. So in it's, the neighborhood we lived in, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't let my kids just roam around. Really? Even at like sixth and eighth grade. Really? Yeah. I mean, we had a trail that would go kind of next to an aqueduct and there was homeless people that would, you know, roam up and down that trail. And it, it just wasn't, we had a high speed chase end on our street one night. I went outside, really? there's a helicopter, you know, yeah, over the house. And I'm like, I go outside and I'm like, what's going on? And the helicopter literally is like, Hey, you need to get back in your house. <laughs> and this was during COVID. I remember oh my gosh. Yeah, that freaked me out. Yeah. And at the time, the only firearm I had technically wasn't legal in California. So yeah, <laughs> I was like, this is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find it actually incredibly sad and it, it kind of actually stresses me out a bit because I don't, I don't actually have the answer. If you made me, you know, king of the nation, um, <laughs> I, I still don't even, I wouldn't have an answer as to what, the, what it would be. But like when I travel, I mean, I was just in New York city this last weekend. Um, I used to go there a lot, uh, you know, for knife shows at least once a year. And then, uh, spent quite a bit of time there when I was, uh, on forged in fire and I spent a bunch of time walking around. Is that my dog? <laughs> yeah, put her out. She's whining. Uh yeah, so what what really was unfortunate was you know when I when I walked around I I, I realized like I didn't see any kids out playing and I could tell I was walking around in areas that y- you wouldn't let your kids out and play. Yeah. And my my kids grew up like they can they can walk out the back door and go down and like build tree forts down by the river and play cowboys and Indians and do whatever right just go have fun and just just let their imagination roam and completely safe you know? right and uh, I, I I walk by a, a playground that's just dry grass like nobody's it wasn't being watered because you're not in the nicest part of New York City you know the basketball hoops are broke there was one uh, mom down there with a kid sitting on a bench watching that kid play just in this dry ass freaking dirt lot you know and I just thought it was incredibly sad like these kids no matter no matter how great their parents are no matter any of that stuff like they don't have the opportunity that you know a lot of kids around the country have and it would be it would be incredibly depressing yeah um and it, it, it bothers me because I actually see that problem seems to be getting worse. Like good neighborhoods you used to be able to play and you can't play in anymore. And it seems like we're having less places for our kids to go have fun outside. Right. So now they're inside. And as a lineman, as a, uh, when I was doing the, the lineman career, when we'd have neighborhoods lose power, we'd roll into those neighborhoods and here in Missoula and there'd be kids playing all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I bet, you know, in the summertime thunderstorm knocks out power or something. We, we come in and, they're riding their bikes and they're skateboarding and they're chasing each other around and doing all that stuff. And, you know, four or five hour, you know, outage and there's kids everywhere. 
And the minute we would turn the power back on, it was like cockroaches. They were back in their houses. Yeah. On their video games or watching TV. Sure. You, and you saw it. You're like, we're in these backyards and you see all the TVs come on. That's wild. And they're gone. Yeah. And it's like, it makes you want to just like go pull the plug on neighborhoods once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember, I mean, yeah, I remember we had a blackout and it was like, we were cooking on, you know, the stove in the backyard. Yeah. And, you know, we, we couldn't cook inside and, and people were coming outside and talking to their neighbor, you know, you're at your power out you know everyone starts hanging out outside it, that's that's what we, we would be up in a bucket truck and usually the power lines in the are in the alley so it's people's backyards we're up in the bucket truck and the neighbors are out there like you say the first thing they do is they're barbecuing yeah if i up the the you know either their weber or their propane grill <clears throat> they're all out on their decks and then like you say they're chatting with the neighbors across right. the fence and they'd be you know, cheering us on or whatever, like, hey, you know, and saying thank you, you know, appreciate you guys. And just like everything was so community oriented and it felt good. And the minute that power was on, it was all over. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting why uh, my girlfriend, we moved in together and she's got two little boys, uh, Brooks and Bear. And they like, <clears throat> excuse me, they like to go outside and play and ride their bikes and stuff. And we encourage that a lot. Um, but it's the neighborhood we moved into, we moved into a really old house and like the old, part of Georgetown. Um, so it's built 1910 and all the neighbors around us have all lived there for, I think 60 years. Yeah. And so there's these, they talk about, they would come out when they'd see us and they would come out and, and come talk because they're like, man, we, we remember when our kids were growing up here, Yeah, you know, 50 years ago and we would all spend time in the neighborhood together and your house, they're like, your house on the corner was kind of where we would all hang out at, like really? we would hang out in the yard and like, That's and so cool. they've been kind of reinvigorated to come, I, you could tell they hadn't talked in a long time, you yeah. know, because they kind of just keep to themselves. One guy has a shop. It's really cool. He's a firefighter in Austin for like 30, 40 years. And so he's got a shop in the back and he's kind of the guy that helps everyone out in the neighborhood. And, yeah. and, uh, so it's interesting to see that even, you know, I think that generation even has started to kind of shut in a little bit more and not, yep. not come out and, and chat and talk to each other. So, well, having kids makes you, makes you get outside. You right. keeping track of them or out playing with them in the <laughs> yard, you know, and once they're gone, you know, you tend to settle into your stuff in the house and be a little less, I mean, kids do, it's the greatest way to meet people in your community because your kids are in sports together True. or they're yeah. doing plays or whatever they're doing. You meet people that way. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's concerning to me though, because I see, I, I don't, I don't see how it gets gets better and the only way it gets better is if we have more security sure like if you feel secure and safe to let your kids outside yep um the less security we have the more bullshit we allow to have happen the less you're going to see kids outside right you, you know it it's it's we, we need to make it to where parents feel safe to let their kids ride their bike three blocks away and go play basketball yep you know well and i get like i think i've talked about this um, with a few people but it's it, you know, the question is, 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 was all that stuff going on before and we just didn't know about it because we didn't have the access to the information or is it because we have so much access to all this crazy info? I mean, on our ring camera, right. It tells you now, oh, there was a break in 1.2 miles away. Right. And you're like, oh man. Like, oh really? That seems really close. Yeah. It'll tell you if oh, there's wild. an incident, right. People can post on there and I'm just like, is that healthy? Like to know, like. <laughs> that is an interesting one. I've never heard of that. I didn't know that was a thing, but. Um, yeah, I don't know how I would feel like if I, if I heard that the neighbor's house three days, three doors down got broke into, if, if I didn't know, I, I wouldn't think twice. You just go about your day, but all of a sudden, like you're going to be walking around, maybe locking stuff. Right. 
you're like, oh man, do I need to lock my truck up now? Like, and that's, I mean, that's, there's a lot of that, like, oh, truck broken into here, there, like every neighborhood, right? Has, especially, I mean, Texas, that's what they're breaking into. Well, I think the answer is both things, honestly. I think there's way more of it happening. Yeah. And you're hearing about it. True. Yeah. So so it's, it's like double bad. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, because you just can't tell me that, that 30 years ago, as many places were getting broke into, as many cars were getting stolen, you know, it's just, it's definitely different, especially even just in the last five years. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, with, with the lack of punishment. and Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw that firsthand because we were still living in California, right, during the lockdown. And there was literally a guy that he, I think he had robbed somebody a couple times. Um, and then one time with a weapon, and he kept getting out, like the paper yeah. was talking about it, and then literally stabbed somebody by the train tracks, yeah. and then finally went to jail for good. Or no, he carjacked somebody. And it's just like, you guys just wrote this story on this guy, yeah, you know, breaking the law five times, and then until he actually really hurt somebody, now you're going to put him away. But It's unfortunate, because with, with California, with so many good people leaving, uh, yeah, Um what, how does California get better? I mean, because I don't know. I, I think we live in here in Montana in absolutely one of the most beautiful states in the country. I don't think there's another state in the country more beautiful than California. Like, yeah. it's got to be number one with the, the skiing and the beaches and the, the, you know, the timber, the, you know, the trees. I mean, everything about it is from north to south is unbelievable. Yep. It's the two-legged deer on that thing that mess it up <laughs> yeah you know if you could just squeegee off the humans yeah because uh, it is it is unbelievably beautiful but how does that how does that work when the the best of the people that california has to offer are the ones that are escaping right i and that's the question right is is that part of the plan you know are they pushing people out because they they want them gone i don't know you know, it's, I, it's been wild. The, I mean, even growing up in San Diego was different, right? Then I worked in LA and Orange County for a long time. And so you can see the difference yeah. between even, you know, Orange County, San Diego and LA. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I mean, the politics just keep tearing it down. So it's, I don't know how that's going to fix itself. Yeah. Um, because everyone you talk to, even you're like, when you start asking questions about the stuff on the, like you voted to raise the gas price twice in a row yeah. in like basically two election cycles. And now, you know, they ask him like, why is it California's gas is literally a dollar more than any other place Yeah, at in, least. in the country? Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we have, you know, taxes and regulations. And it's like, but for what? Which, drive down the which, road. which spreads out that, that, you know, there, there is that wealth gap, right? Where it just makes it harder on the people who are already struggling. Right. You know. Oh man, the guys that you know have to you know, guys that are, you know, out there landscapers and stuff that have to put gas not just in their trucks, but then also in all their machines, you know. Right. And um I think at one point they they let it out, you know, they kind of start saying the quiet parts out loud now, but it's like, oh well, you know, we we're trying to push people into driving more uh fuel right. economic vehicles, right? Or electric vehicles. Right. But then now California is proposing because now people are driving so many electric vehicles. They saw the taxes, you know, income go down. And so now they're starting to say, oh, well, we're going to tax you on your mileage now. Yeah. Not just the, yeah. the fuel. Or your electric usage, you know. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, well, 
How's yeah, that work? Because California also has the highest electric rates in the country. Right. Oh, I know, absolutely. I know that as a lineman. Um, and a lot of that comes from mismanagement, frankly. 100%. Water, too. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, that, oh, droughts, right? So your water bill's got to go up because, you know, we want you to use less water. But then when the rain comes and, you know, everything kind of fixes itself, the, the prices don't go down on your bill. Yeah. Yeah. So it just gets increased and increased and increased year after year. Yeah. So did you grow up in California? Yep. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was actually an accountant, and my mom, um, after they split up, became a, a school teacher. So, okay. Yep. She was a teacher there for 23 years. Did you play sports? or I did. Um, I started out playing soccer when I was real young, and then in high school, I played water polo and golf primarily. I grew up golfing a lot out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just a lot of action sports. So Really? Skateboarding, surfing, wakeboarding, snowboarding. Yeah. All, all that. If I could awesome. be on a board by myself, like, I was good. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what did you do after you graduated high school? So I went, um, I met uh, a couple, and, and my sister was nannying for them, and, and they had their own uh, design firm. Uh, and they encouraged me to go to art school. Um, and so I went to art school, and I was there for, like, six months, and I got appendicitis and just kind of, I was out for a while. The doctor kind of messed up the surgery, and so I was down for a little bit. And, uh, I realized like, ah, this art school, I'm paying 10 grand a month. And at the time it was, it was a weird time because they were kind of transitioning from the analog to digital in terms of how you design things. Right. So, um, a lot of it before was like making copies and Ruby lith and like handling yeah. stuff out. And then, but this is right when Adobe was, was kind of starting to take over. Okay. And so a lot of my classes were classroom in a book, literally. They would give you a book, it had a disc in it, and they're like, hey, do, you know, this first chapter or whatever for, was that this week's assignment. But I'm it going. was the old school way of doing design. I mean, it was all... This was now the Adobe stuff. And okay. so they're like, here's your disc, you okay. know, put that in your computer and, and you know, follow the lessons. And I'm like, okay. I'm paying you 10 grand, you know, yeah. like when I can go buy that book for 60 bucks. Yeah. And so I dropped out of there and I went to... Um, the, the junior college we had actually was had a really good design program. And so I started going there and uh, I worked, I was, I was working at UPS. I used to load the trucks at UPS, the semi trucks, which oh. was actually a great job. Um, but when I got sick and I had my appendicitis, like I couldn't, I was on disability and I was like, I can't do this. Like I'm not going to sit around on disability. So yeah. I got a job at Kinko's of all places because they had like graphic design program, right? Like you can lay out flyers for people and Oh, really? Yeah. So my school had told me like, hey, it's kind of a good entry-level job. You get work experience. And so I started doing that, which was miserable um, and work. But I, I got a job at a place in Carlsbad, which was close to where there was a lot of, you know, action sports brands had headquarters nearby. And um, I met a guy one day that came in to make some copies and I started chatting him up. And that's how... Um, I mean, I'd literally been there 90 days and he was like, Hey, my buddy's hiring a, an assistant graphic designer at rip curl. And I was like, awesome. Like, is I was that like, a board company? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, they're out of Australia. Um, okay. Originally. And so I was like, dude, I'd love to apply. And, um, so I got the job assistant designer at rip curl was there for four years, um, worked in marketing primarily. Um, so catalogs, ads, uh, booths, you know, trade show booths, stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, worked my way up. But I started falling in love with graphic design for T-shirts. So I started freelancing. It's a really small community once you get in there. And mm -hmm. so you meet, you know, one person and then 
we actually would trade a lot back then. So like marketing oh. budgets were still pretty big. So I was like, Hey, and everyone wanted rip curl wetsuits. So I used to trade guys for shoes at like skate companies or watches, you know, Nixon yeah. was just coming around. So we would always meet each other and like, Hey, I'll trade you a wetsuit for some watches or I yeah. kind of, you know, give a kickback to the wetsuit guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, do you yeah. need a watch, you know? So, uh, that's kind of where I learned uh, t-shirt graphics. And then from there, I got a job at Quicksilver as a graphic designer doing just t-shirts. And um, But I, there were six of us kind of in this design pit is what it was called. Um, graphic oh, really? designers, yeah. And we were just cranking graphics out. But really? my boss actually, <clears throat> I think this is where I kind of got a unique perspective. I mean, artists are, are kind of, you know, some of us can be very like just about the art and it's precious, whatever. Yeah. Quicksilver, they're like, look, we're here to make money. So, you know, yes, we want cool graphics, great art, but we would do like a competition every season where it's like, who can make the graphic that's going to sell the most t-shirts? And so we would kind of gamify it and uh, we tracked all that stuff. And Mm. so that's really where I kind of learned, okay, yes, you can be creative. You can come up with your own designs, but you got to keep the lights on, right? Right, you learn the business side of it. Right, so, okay, these graphics sell, right? This is kind of the, le- you, you get to see trends, you get to see, okay. Yeah. You know, we got to cover the, cover our bases with this kind of stuff, and, um, and uh, which was great. Like, I think that really helped me a lot in my career, and just as I grew, you know, to want to open my own business, like, how to understand, like, really what your customer wants at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and so, I grew there, and then, but knowing there's six guys in this pit, you know, if I want to move up here, it's going to be, you know, one of us six, not right. all of us six. And so right. I looked over to the cut and sew department and I really started to like that side of the business, like really understanding design for apparel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a buddy, I mean, I, I was friends with a few guys over there, but a, one of my buddies, Ronnie, um, was kind of a mentor of mine. He worked with me at Rip Curl too. And so he took me under his wing they transferred me over there as an assistant designer for cut and sew apparel now. And I basically just became everyone's like assistant. Like I would just do grunt work. Like, Hey, yeah. do my tech packs for me, do this stuff. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, so hmm. yeah. And, and that's where I really learned, you know, design. I would just have to figure it out. I mean, a lot of it was fake it till you make it, you know? Yeah. Right. So I would just go through all the old tech packs and I would pull it up if I was doing like a board short. Right. It's like, okay, I'd, go look at like three or four old board charts and see, Oh, this is how they called out the pocket. And this is that stitch. And this is okay. This is a bar tack. And, you know, really try to understand, like deconstruct everything to make something new. Interesting. Yeah. And so that's really how I learned, you know, yeah, basically how to design was going through and helping all these other guys finish their projects for them. Yeah. And, uh, at one point I went to my boss and was just like, Hey, if I get all my work done, you know, all this, the stuff I'm doing for these other guys, can I just design products that I think we need for the company, you know, that I, that I would want to wear. And they're like, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. So, um, I started doing that and that's where I really, you know, I, it was fun. right. Again, it's cover your, keep the lights on. Right. I, I kind of got gone back to this, but Quicksilver was really known for their floral board shorts. It was right. kind of like one of those things to keep the lights on. Everyone wants to buy them, but nobody cared about them, yeah. right? It was just kind of, yeah, we just do them. They buy them. They're boring, whatever. It's lame. It's your annuity. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, but what if we made a cool one, you know? So I did like an Andy Warhol kind of inspired one with like halftone dots and super bright colors, hibiscus flowers. And um, there's like a very famous piece of artwork he has with some hibiscus flowers. And so I kind of mimicked that. And uh, 
it it took off like it you know I did it they were like yeah it's cool and so they put it in the line and we sold it through PacSun and Zoomies which typically didn't happen right because they're both in the mall they would know like oh did PacSun buy that did their buyer buy that you know we're not going to buy that yeah you know because they didn't want to compete with each other on that level so right um, but they both ended up doing all store buys with it which was pretty you know unheard of yeah and it it took off and that's where my boss was like all right you know design we'll, more <laughs> we'll keep you around yeah so um so I was there for a little bit and then my buddy Ronnie left and he would just call me and be like hey man like I want you to come design for me because I'd, I'd moved up to the point at Quicksilver where they put me in where I I mean basically when you're in a company that big they kind of really narrow things down right they got a lot of mouths to feed and so they're like you're just going to do knits and sweaters you know, we're, okay. we're giving you a promotion, but your promotion is now you just do polo shirts and sweaters and like Henleys. And how much do you design that hits the cutting room floor that never actually gets made? They're probably like at least 50%. But yeah. there's been businesses where I've worked for, you know, especially the smaller ones where you really have to design a lot and get samples made. There were some that was like 70% would just not get made. Yeah. Yeah. You get samples made and then it just gets cut. It's wild. And you Man. pay double for samples. Yeah. Um, typically. Yeah. And then usually the factory will eat the cost if it goes into production. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. So. Um, How long does it take to get a sample made? So. I mean, what's the design process to a finished product? Right. So at a lot of those bigger companies, our timeline was about two years. You would no start. Oh, shit. Yep. So. Because it's all getting made overseas, right? Right. Um, is it usually China or is it Vietnam or is it just all kinds of places? I mean, a, a lot of it moved to China. We did a lot of stuff in India as well, um, especially on the knit side. China got really good with a lot of the wovens um, with their machinery and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was India or China. Really? Um, once that sh- the shift started happening, once Trump got into office and all the tariffs started coming down, everyone like diversified out of China. Vietnam, uh, Cambodia. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So they time. were only, Indonesia. those tariffs were only applying to China, but not those other places. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And so everyone was like, we got to get, we got to diversify out of China. Everyone was very heavy in China. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so when it starts, um, I mean, especially at, so at action sports brands is completely different because they're chasing this 16 year old kid whose yep. perspective changes every six months. And so you really had to be on the ball with the trends and, and what was going on. Um, Especially if you're talking about a year and a half, two year right. lag. Yep. And so a lot of people don't realize like most fashion, it, I mean, it starts at the top, right? High fashion, right? And it's not like you're taking design cues from runway, but you're looking at colors, right? Like what colors are they using? What's the, you know, they'll hit genres basically. Oh, it's seventies, you know, it's kind of the inspiration for this season. Hmm. And so then that would literally distill down. Okay, the prints are going to look more 70s vibe. And we would have print vendors that would come that literally would have old swatches from couches or old fabrics, you know, vintage stuff. And they would show it to you and you'd be like, oh, yeah, we'll buy that one. And you kind of use that as a print for your season. And um, so you start with that concepting, right? You come up with concepts. You start with color, prints, things like that, kind of big kind of story ideas, high level. And then that would then distill down into, okay, um, we kind of have our ideas, our colors for the season. Now, what bodies are we going to fill this? Is there like a new body, right? Like polos, Hanleys, is it hoodies? Is it zip hoodies this season or is it more pullover hoodies, right? Right. Down to that. And so you have merchandisers there as well. And so that's part of their job 
um, looking at trends, looking at sales, looking at sell through through the different stores. Um, and we would go on research trips. Uh, typically about two years out, we would go, I mean, we would go to Tokyo, we would go London, Paris, like all these places. And just, really? Yep. And uh, a lot of that, I think, started, I mean, this is before phones had really good digital cameras on it, right? And yeah. so we would buy spy cameras, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we would buy little handheld spy cameras because we would go into the stores and you couldn't, they wouldn't let you take photos in these high-end stores, right? Oh, if really? they catch you, they kick you out. Really? So, yeah. So it was fun. And they knew who we were when we come in. You got six people all kind of dressed similarly, right? And you're in Tokyo, Japan. They're like, oh, we know what you're, you're here for, right? Really? And so you'd kind of, a lot of times with my merchandiser, we would break off. Um, and she and I would go into a store and act like we were to, like a couple. Right. And I'd hold something up. What do you think about this? You know, like hold it against me. And, oh, yeah. And she would take pictures and. You you get sneaky about it, but yeah, you had to sneak around and take photos, try and get prints or trims like little buttons or hang tags or labels, right? And get inspiration. And everyone would bring that back and we would all kind of distill it down. Okay, what would we like? Like what do we kind of want to use as like inspiration and, and go from there? And we would pile all that together, have our big ideas, have our color stories. And typically, especially if you're in big retailers, um, you have to have a very clear color story. Um and you would have to have like two to three drops, right? Because you got to start, you typically have two main seasons, right? Spring and fall mm-hmm. or back to school. And uh, they have the racks. They got. If you're a big brand, you got to fill a space. And right. so your colors have to kind of work together. Your shorts have to match with your tops and, you know, things like that. So you would build out your color stories to know like, and you would merchandise outfits as you designed, right? So you'd have to work with the other teams to like really create a, a collection that works together on the floor. And you would have probably three drops in a big season like that, you know, January, February drop, uh, March, April drop, and then your summer kind of trails off. Right. Um, so <clears throat> there was a lot of thought and like process that went into narrowing the line down because it's like, oh, we're getting rid of this. I mean, sometimes they get rid of a whole color story and you're like, well, shoot. I don't have any of these other colors in, in my shorts. Like you'd have to add stuff back or recolor some stuff, but yeah, it was wild. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it's such a different, um, it's such a different world than the world that we operate in where we're, cause we're still reacting. So, and, and trying to move so fast. Yep. Um, cause we're still learning, learning our customer, learning our market and, and growing so fast that we're just kind of reacting in the, in the day. And so we're, we're working on a, five to six month time frame. Yep. And to me, that seems like a lot, but it's, it's, but it's not. Cause I've heard of, you know, I've heard this, that like, you know, a lot of these knife companies and a lot of these different companies are, are, you know, working on a two to three year time frame, And it's, it's crazy to me. Cause like, it's amazing how much can change. Right. In that amount of time. Yeah. You know, well, and that, I think that's a difficult thing with the larger companies, right. Is their lack of ability to be able to change yeah. once it's in the pipeline. Right. You know? And so, I definitely saw that when I started my own brand and being able to sell direct to consumer, how much shorter you can make those timelines, yeah. which is, is pretty wild. Yeah, um, for sure. You're not having to go through a lot of bureaucracy to get stuff approved. And like, I mean, when you're creating a color story, you've got to go through. You're trying to impress your customer, not your also your your main buyer. And right? You, like, right, exactly. When it's direct to consumer, right? I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that. Like the stuff that's sold in big stores, like they're not thinking about the customer. It's like, what's this buyer going to like, you know, like what's their style? I remember I had to 
when I worked at Prana, they would have me when, when like the buyers for REI would come into town, mm-hmm. I would have to go out to dinner. I would have to kind of, you know, they wanted me to build rapport with the buyers because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be pulling the trigger on what they put in the store. So if a buyer changes at a, at a, at a store, that's a, probably a huge, huge learning their personality, learning their tastes. Like, but if a buyer changes, but you've got all this stuff in the pipeline for two years out, like, holy shit, that's, yep. That can be quite the challenge too. Yeah. Or even a CEO changes, right? Yeah. And they're, you know, especially the places like PacSun, places like that, um, where you would literally see the CEO change and then see the entire shift in the store, right? They had a CEO one time, right? Abercrombie and Fitch was the big, you know, to do at the time. And they got the CEO from Aber, an old, not the CEO, but he was like a VP or something. And they made him CEO at PacSun. Mm-hmm. And the whole floor changed, like really? the way they did things, what styles they wanted, the look, because that's all they knew. Yeah. And then he got fired two years later and they brought in somebody from Urban Outfitters because that was kind of the hot thing after that. Right. Mm-hmm. Everything changed again. Right. Yeah. The buyers changed, the people changed, what they wanted changed. And it just, it's wild to see if you're a hot brand, right. If you're a new upcoming brand, you can tell everyone else to pound sand. Right. right. You're going to take what we're making and you're going to like it. When you're right. a 30, 40 year old heritage brand, yeah. completely different. Yeah. You're kind of, you know, bending the knee to these buyers to be like, oh, what do you guys want? What do you think? You know? And right. It's, uh, yeah, it's you're competing different. against the new young hot girl over right. there. So it's like, yeah, you're the old housewife. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it, how, how long did you work? Um, how long did you work at Quicksilver before you moved on? Yeah, I was there. So I was at Rip Curl for four years, Quicksilver for four years, and then I bounced around kind of a, a lot after that. Um, it was like every one to two years I would I would make a switch, and that would be my buddy Ronnie would, you know, he was kind of the one that would bring me in, and that's how things worked at these places is they would hire a manager because they knew, like, we want you to bring your team in, right? Like, okay. you're not the one just coming in by yourself. So it's you're, like hiring a head coach, and he brings his staff kind of. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's how a lot of the places worked. Um, really? Did you stay pretty much in the area you were in, or did you have to move around the country for that? No, they're all in Orange County. Are they? There's a few that aren't there. Um, and I grew up south of there in San Diego, and so I would commute. I didn't want to. I didn't want my family to have to deal with living in Orange County. Yeah, I didn't love it up there. You know, I grew up going to the desert. I was kind of Escondido is more of a blue collar town, so like that was definitely like my vibe. Yeah, and so definitely visiting Orange County was just like I don't want to live here. Yeah. Like the people here are great. I like the people I work with. How long does that commute every day? Hour and a half each way. Damn. Yep. So I would try and organize my schedule. So I would work from seven to two thirty as much as I could. So I'd miss a lot of the traffic, but dude, I, I, it, it, it's crazy to me. And you see, I, I don't know how people do it. That's they're spending three hours a day, four hours a day in their car. Yeah. Um, in traffic, like I, I, I don't understand how you can live that way. It would be mentally so stressful to me because I, I get pissed off at stupid drivers anyway. <laughs> oh man, yeah, and me too. And then just to know, like, uh, one little accident happens, and now you're going to miss your kids' game, or you're going to miss right. your kids' birthday party, or dinner with your friends, or, um, and and just the amount of hours in your life, like you only have so many hours in your life, right? And to spend four hours, three hours a day, two hours a day, you know, two hours a day at, what is there, 270 work days a year? It's over 500 hours of your life every year. Right, a year. In your car. 
right when I was doing the three hours, I did the math and I was like, this is 30, 24 hour days a year. 30, 20, that's yeah. That's a month of your life just sitting in your car. Gone. So the, the few things that helped me one, I was like really into punk rock when I was younger, yeah. right? Like growing up in action sports, like all the videos, it's just all like Pennywise, Lagwagon, bad religion. And I would listen to that on my commute home. And I had a little sporty GTI and driving through Camp Pendleton doing 115 was fun. But yeah, I would get home and my life would just be like, you need to like go for a run or something like you're amped up. Like <laughs> yeah. you're, you're a mess. Like go, go, yeah. go away for you know, yeah. a solid hour. And so I realized, okay. So then I switched to like reggae, you know, and just kind of yeah, more mellow music. Down. Right. But what really was a game changer was, um, one was podcasts, right? So yeah. like, you know, I'd listen to morning radio stuff on the way there, which was fun. You know, Kevin and Bean in Orange County were hilarious. So mm-hmm. um, that's where like Jimmy Kimmel got his start and all those guys. So they were, mm-hmm. they were pretty cool um, morning radio. But then podcasts really, you know, changed the game for me. Uh, Joe Rogan, Adam Carolla, you know, yeah. listening to those guys every morning was just like, all right. And then books, you know, I'd listen to a lot of books. Um, a lot of that didn't come till later till I wanted to start my own brand and like really need to buckle down and like learn about business. And, yeah. You know, just even inspirational, you know, a hundred percent. I, I swear the, cause I used to went back when I was a full-time custom knife maker. Um, I pretty much listened to sports talk radio every day, all day. Sure. Right? And it's fine. I mean, it, it's, it, it is what it is, but it doesn't make you like better. Right. It's just white noise. Yeah. It's yeah. white noise. I, you know, Earlier, earlier on in my life, you know, I just would listen to music or whatever on the radio. But then I got into sports talk because it, it, you know, they are discussing things of the day and it keeps your mind a little bit more engaged. But the podcasting for me, same thing, like, you know, the amount of information that's out there, whether it's motivational, whether it's, you know, learning about a certain topic. And then since I started MKC, like CEO podcasts and leadership podcasts and you know, all these different, um, like you say, a lot of just motivational stuff to realize, like, you're not the only person trying to do what you're doing. Right. There's people that have been there, done that, um, and it keeps keeps you driving forward. You don't feel like you're alone. Um, the podcasting for me was huge, and I, it's actually kind of unfortunate because now I'm so busy, I actually don't get to listen to it as much, listen to them as much. So, like, when I get a little alone time, I, I love throwing on a podcast. And frankly, that's where I get a lot of my news. You know, I listen to three or four different podcasts. I try to listen to some varying opinions and takes on stuff where it's not an echo chamber, but, um, I don't watch the TV for news. No, (laughs) you know, you can't (laughs) No, Um, and you can actually find some, some podcasters that, that really truly kind of report left and right, kind of down the center. Right. You you get a little varying back and forth. So, you, you know, you see, see it from, Besides just one side of the story. Yeah, absolutely. But for people that are sitting in their car that many hours a day, like that is truly an amazing opportunity to learn. I mean, you could learn a freaking foreign language Yeah, in a year. You could sit there and talk to yourself in your car for a year and be fluent in Spanish by the time you're done with it. Totally. Yeah, I mean, mean, especially three hours a day, right? Like, Yeah. That's a lot of time. That's college. Yeah. Like that's literally a, a... Twelve credit course, <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, yeah. So if you apply that to whatever else, like you say, business or marketing or or leadership, make yourself a better boss at your own job, whatever it is. Like, I I totally agree with you. Yeah. So I, w- what what were you gonna say? 
I just think it, I, the great thing would be if somebody could figure out a way for note taking while you're doing it, right? Like yeah. if you could like, hey Siri, like, and then take a note for me. Yeah, you know that would. That's the, I think that's the hardest thing. I love listening to books and podcasts when I run and work out too, right? So that's where I kind of get that time back now mm-hmm. that I work from home. But the hardest thing is when like a little nugget hits you and you're like, oh, I need to remember that, you know, yeah. taking the time to stop and write it down. And no, that's a good, that's a good point. And I, I have a terrible memory. So um, I'll hear quotes, things I'd like to share with my employees. And like you say, you're busy doing stuff. And you're like, oh, I got to remember that. And then I heard one this morning. I was listening to Rogan uh, putting racks together in my forging shop that I wanted to share with my employees. And I'm th- it, that was an hour ago, and I can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the gist of it, so I'll probably make up my own quote and take credit for it. Yeah, yeah. I try to so, remember key words in there, and I'll, I'll search it later. Yeah. And, and hopefully it's the right one. Hopefully it comes up. Yeah. <laughs> so what... Uh, were you, were you the whole time you were in your work career, were you also still doing action sports or what, what kind of things were you into on your off time? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that was the great part about working for these brands, right? Is, uh, rip curl, we would surf almost every day. Um, and it was encouraged, right? Like we would surf at lunch, you know, the, especially when you're marketing, you know, the, the pros would come into town and we would all go out and surf with them. It was, it was a blast. Um, and then Quicksilver, we had, uh, our own private skate park at the office. We would surf every day. Um, one of my favorite stories was uh, we were out on a surf lunch. Um, we got breakfast burritos and beers, and we're walking back into the office, and literally like boards with wetsuits draped over them, walking in and um, coming out the back door is uh, at the time uh, Bob McKnight was the CEO. He was a big USC guy, and uh, here comes Pete Carroll and like three or four USC football players, and they see us walking in the back door. And, uh, Pete Carroll's like, look at these assholes. They got the life. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Bob's just laughing. He's like, yep, it's a pretty good gig. And we just walked in inside and, you know, we had showers there and really, you know, yeah, it was that great. A good gig. Yeah. It's fun. And then like all the trade shows were just like a train wreck. Like it was fun. Like growing up being 20, you know, something years old, I started working at Rip Curl when I was 19. And so I was everyone's little brother. And so it was just full throttle. Those yeah. guys are wild too. Australians are they can, they can get down. So it was, it was a pretty wild ride for the first, you know, few years. Um, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it was great. Like skating, sir. I mean, I would get free lift tickets, you know, I never had paid for lift tickets. I would have skate parks. We would go skate wherever all the time. Yeah. And so it was a blast free. I mean, you're getting free boards, free, whatever, you know, gear. Right. So, um, we knew, uh, the guy that was a team manager for liquid force. So like we had access to, he would take us out on the boat and in the Carlsbad Lagoon when we would want to. It was That's it was cool. a good time, yeah. And so then when I got, I moved up kind of through action sports, and um, I started working at Prana was my last job. So that was like, they're like a big outdoor company. They're owned by uh, Columbia. And so that was kind of my last uh, gig in the industry Yeah. Um, before I started, you know. <clears throat> I had started off the grid before that um, when I was working, um I work for a company called FMF. Uh, so they made like exhaust systems for motorcycles, for dirt bikes. And they were kind of big lifestyle kind of vibe brand too. And yeah. so I was working for them, but they were trying to grow their cut and sew side of things and it just didn't work. And, uh, and so we got laid off and I was driving home and I'm, you know, just like, I got to do my own thing. You know, I'd seen a lot of how the, the industry gives back, you know, like the really cool thing about the surf industry is they do so much for the community. Um, yeah. and 
in the off-road space, I didn't really see that happening. There wasn't an apparel brand uh, in the off-roading space mm-hmm. that was would give back, that was helping create community, that created apparel just for these this community. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, the name Off the Grid came to me and uh, while I was driving home, actually on one of those drives. And it's funny, right? It's like when you go to buy a car, you never see that car. And then once you start focusing on it, you see it everywhere. Right. And so I would... I would hear it on TV. I would, you know, see it. And, uh, I went to go look the trademark up and it, it was open, you know, somebody had abandoned it. And so I went to go buy it and the judge thought my trademark was too close to someone else. They had like off the social grid, um, trademarked. So I had to buy that, that trademark from them. Um, and then I just started making tees and hats and, you know, kind of just the basic stuff that you can get real easy, uh, building up social media presence and um, just being in community, meeting people, you know, reposting people. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't post a single picture of myself on the off the grid page until over a year. Really? Right. Because I just wanted, like, I wanted to showcase other, like, I I wanted to design the clothes, but I didn't want to be the right, brand. The face, right. Yeah. And so I wanted off the grid to be the brand. Mm-hmm. And working at all the other big companies, you know, that's kind of, that's how I try to approach it. And I realized that was a mistake, you know, to some degree, right? Especially now, right? You listen to a lot of the podcasts, you know, the Andy Frisellas or the guys like that. And they're like, part of if you own a business is you are the brand. Like right. You are also a part of the brand, whether you like it or not. You know, like you meet people at trade shows, they're going to get to like you, they get to know you as a person. And that is going to also affect how they feel about your brand. And so um, I've been trying to be a lot more purposeful about that going through a divorce for the last two years, I definitely took a yeah backseat to doing that. But now is kind of more of the time where, you know, I want to get out and kind of share the story of the company a little bit more from my perspective and, and what we're doing. I think it's a balance though, because yeah. we're learning that, right? Cause like I, I'm kind of the face of our company, um, <clears throat> you know, with the one that started it and stuff and I'm the knife maker and whatever, but like you can also, there's a couple things of that, right? Like, you can make it so much about yourself right? that the company can only grow so big, right? Yep. Um, and I'm really not that cool. So, like, to, to try to just base our company off of me would have been a mistake. And, and I could have kept, you know, my, I was making knives. My custom knives are just Josh Smith knives, right? But there's a reason I didn't name my company after myself. Yep. Um, also, because, like, if you want to grow that company up and sell it, if you want to grow that company up and uh, let your family take it over someday, you know, if you name it after yourself, um, it becomes very just tied to you, right? And I think there's a real, there's, it's very rare, it happens, right, where there's a, a name of a, of a person that becomes like that big of a brand, right? But um, the other side of it is too, is like there's only so many trade shows you can possibly go to. There's yeah. only so many places that you can be at one time in the calendar, you know, and, and we're noticing that. And, and that's where, um, like Henry's do, done a good job here with videography of like showing our, our, our workers downstairs working on knives and showing some behind the scenes and actually highlighting some of our people. And we take our employees to those shows Yep, and, and have them in the booth where customers can get to know them. And so, it's not just one person and you can kind of spread that load out. And also like somebody might not think I'm that cool, but they might think Melissa's a badass, right? Or they might think Paris is super cool or Matt or Tristan. So like 
it gives you more opportunity for I, I think I think those guys are right, but I think it can be more than just one person. Right. You know, but they have to be within the brand. Right. Because like you say, you're highlighting people who are wearing the shirt and stuff, but like people do want to know the brand itself. Yeah. Who's behind the scenes? You yeah. know? Yeah. I mean they they get they feel some sort of ownership, right? Over it. By well, like, and like we're a hunting knife company, so they, you know, they want to see that we actually have people that hunt, right? That live, that do the thing, right? If you're a surfing company, you like, you know, to, to your point, back when you were out surfing on your lunch breaks, like, if that stuff is put out there, that, that hey, this is our marketing team, or this is our design guy, um, and he's out surfing on lunch break, like, that's what those customers want to see. That, that it's like, oh, people like me are actually designing and making this stuff. Yeah. Well, and even a lot of retired pros, you know, would come work at the, the different companies. And that was huge, right? You'd, you'd bring in a new account and you're like, oh, you want to meet, you know, at Rip Curl, you'd be like, oh, you want to meet Tom Kern? He's in town right now, you know? Yeah. He's, he's you know, still a big part of the brand. Yeah. It would be huge. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So uh, did you have much help or did you have anybody helping you out with off the grid in the beginning or uh, uh, at any point? For the first four years, it was just a lot of, uh, you know, I had some friends that would help out, you know, help me get stuff made and um, that were going to help with sales. And I mean, I, I've i gone through definitely a few iterations of people that were, you know, either partners in the brand or, or mm-hmm. just, you know, a part of the brand. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was literally me, you know, on my lunch breaks at these places, shipping, shipping stuff out and, yeah. you know, getting stuff made and storing it in the garage. Were you just <laughs> screen printing locally and some of that stuff? Yep. Yep, screen printing hats or uh, tees and then getting hats embroidered and yeah. just small stuff, you know. When you yeah. do cut and sew, once you get transitioned into that, you have to make a lot of units. And so, so how does that, yeah, that that's a, you know, for, for me when I started doing the knives for MKC, I, you know, I was doing customs, one, well, one knife a month maybe, you know, something like that. And yeah. then all of a sudden, like you say, when you go to do a batch and it's like, oh, I need to make 200 or 500 or you know, with apparel, you know, maybe by the thousands, like what was that moment like for you when you did your first cut and sew and you had to commit to a huge ass order? Right. Yeah. And so we had to do, I think at the time they were letting me do 800 units, a color, and I wanted two colors. And so we had to do a Indiegogo campaign. And that's where I met um, my most recent business partner is I did the campaign. We raised the money um, to get it just to get it started. Cause they, when you're a small business too, they won't start they're like, yeah, you don't have any history, right? Like I've, it was a factory I'd worked with in the past. So that was helpful, but they're like, you, you know, like you've never even launched a product before. So like you need to pay 30% up front and then 70% when it hits the docks, like we're not even going to release it to you until you're fully paid up hundred percent. And so we had to raise the capital. I did it through Indiegogo at the time. And I, I raised enough to get it started. What's Indiegogo? What's Indiegogo? It's like Kickstarter. Okay. So they just take less money from you at the end. I mean, yeah. those, those, both those platforms take about, I think Indiegogo was like 7% of the money you raise. And oh, really? Yeah. Kickstarter is, I think, 11 or something like that. And so it's a great platform um, to raise capital. But I didn't know anything about ads, right? Like I've been doing social media and, you know, that's a whole nother ball of wax, you know, mm-hmm. getting in the algorithm, posting the stuff. I mean, and it used to be way easier. I mean, I remember posts when we only had, 7,000 followers reaching 20,000 people. Yeah. You know, and yeah. now it's like we have close to 60,000 followers. And if we reach over five, 600 people, like <laughs> there, there were some knife makers that were smart that got on 
some of the social channels like day one. Yep. And it's it's amazing how big of followings they got like right off the bat, like how they were being pushed, you know, yep. and get 50, 60,000 followers in no time. And and now to gain followers and to gain gain a following and and have your, you know, look at your insights and see that people are seeing your stuff. It's it's a challenge. Yeah, 100%. And they can even limit your feed to your own people. 100%. Which is crazy. You're yeah, like, especially when you make knives. Oh, <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, yeah. we even have a knife in our one of our posts, right? And it becomes an issue or a gun or anything like that. Right. You know, it's like we have to. Guns especially. Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll, and it sucks because we have friends. I think I'm wearing, yeah, I am wearing a Nosler shirt. Uh, you know, not we have friends that make guns, right? Seekins and Nosler and right. you know, some of these people. So like you want to share their stuff, but like you, you know, you you share you share where like people can tell it's a gun, but it's like a piece of it, right? Or right. the Nosler logo or you know, Seekins, but you just put a full on gun on there and the 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 AI technology, whatever they have, that shit sees it and it is Yep. Absolutely shut down. Shut down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they've even shut down our store for a month. And not told us why, you know, like our, our revenue dropped like 20, 20, 30%. And we're just like, what's going on? And they're like, uh, you know, your, your account got flagged. And we're like, for what? And they're like, ah, uh, we're looking into it. We could never find a person to give us an answer. Yeah. It, they just would shut the faucet off. Yeah. It's why. You talking on the, like the ad side? Not ads. This was, so we built a online store on our, you have like a Facebook store. Because they're okay. pushing ads going to that space now. Yeah. I heard in April of next year, they're, you'll no longer be able to run ads that go to your website. They have to go to your store. No shit. Yeah. And so we built out our Facebook shop. You know, that's what it's called. And, of course, they give you a lot more push. They give you a lot more play in that shop. But then, you know, they can shut the faucet off whenever they want. Yeah. Which is wild. But, so. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. The first round of pants. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We, we did an Indiegogo. The first cut and so. Yep. And that's where I met a guy. Um, I thought I knew. I, I thought I was running ads, but I was really just boosting posts. Okay. <laughs> and so he came in and was like, let me let me look at your account. Like, let me figure this out. So he came in and he started running ads and it, it took off. Like, we were getting a huge return. Um, and uh, so we, we had done a, we had started doing sales, but to get the product in, we needed to, to pay our final invoice and I didn't have the, the cash to do it. And so I asked my mom if I could, you know, borrow the money to bring the cash in. And we literally got scammed of 10 grand. Um, oh shit. Yeah. So these guys and they, it's well known now. Um, but they hacked into our email thread with the factory and they literally had the exact same email, um, addresses but they added an underscore in like in yep. between the names instead of like a period or and so everything looked legit and they're like hey we have different banking information we, we change banks you know you need to send the money here and i at the time just wasn't i I'd, I'd responded back like okay are you sure like i just want to confirm this is okay and i was responding to them not uh, the factory and they're like yep so i sent the money wired it and at the time, I was still working for another brand. And uh, I was in Colorado, I think. Yeah, that was right when they moved to Denver for Outdoor Retailer. And uh, I had to go to Wells Fargo on my, you know, on my lunch break at the show and wired the money. I get home that night, and I, I called the factory. and was like, hey, I wired the money. You know, you can release the goods now. And they're like, we never, we didn't get anything. 
and my heart like literally sank. I was like, what do you mean? And, uh, so then I was like, you guys, and I was talking to him now on, on WhatsApp. Like we got on a call. They're like, call us. And, uh, they're like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't receive a wire. Um, and it should have come through. And I was like, all right. All right. And I was dying. I was just like, what is happening right now? Um, and you're telling them like, well, you changed, you said you changed banks and they're like, ah, no. We so didn't. that's when I, yeah, I said, Hey, you know, you gave me new, new banking details. And they're like, we did. They're like, we don't, we didn't, we haven't changed banks. And they're like, send us the information that you got. And I forwarded them the email and they're like, that's not us. And I was just like, oh, you know, so I do everything. Call Wells Fargo. It's a wire. You do a wire transfer. There's not an hour later. It's gone. Like they can't, they can't get it back. So, damn, yeah. They do that with the Instagram accounts. You know, we we get a ton of, especially on the giveaway stuff, but they add a dot, you know, and, and then we get people you know, it's a giveaway, and then they 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 message people saying, "Congrats, you won!" Right. You just need to pay for shipping or whatever. And then we get people that DM us, and they're like, "Hey, I paid for shipping. How come I haven't gotten this?" And we're like, "If you win something from us, we're going to mail it to you." Right. Like we're not going to charge you shipping, but <laughs> they miss an underscore, a dot, or they leave one letter out. And Montana Knife Company is a long enough name that you leave one letter out it, it it's not it's it's right. it's kind of hard to spot your brain connects the dots <clears throat> yeah. for itself yep yeah the tricky bastards well and they used to be able to get the blue check marks too for a while yeah right you could just kind of pay for it and yeah. so i knew there's a lot of people that would pay for coaching through that you know just, oh it's this online coach and they're super well known and they have the blue check mark yeah wasn't me so what would you do uh so my business the guy that i partnered with he shelled out the, the money yeah he's like we got to pay it back you know like and we started running ads and <clears> sales <throat> were coming through so we paid it back to him i still owe my mom the money thanks mom. yeah um she's been awesome but yeah so we were able to get those in and uh for the next round we did a pre-order just on our own through our website four month pre-order which is pretty wild and uh that's how we were able to bring the next order in and then man we started partnering with with different groups to help fund the POs and that got sticky real fast. So really, yeah, we got out over our skis a couple times and you know, it's been a, it's been a process kind of wrangling things back in and, and yeah. transitioning the business back to a, a healthy place. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, it, it's so hard for people to understand. Like, you know, people look at what we're doing. They're like, Oh, you're doing so good and you must be making tons of money. And it's like, you have no idea how much money you have to lay out. Yeah. To keep the beast fed. Right. Up like, front. Yeah. Like, well, why don't you guys just make more knives? Like, why are you always out? Like what, what? And it's like, okay, but to do that, right. We have to buy, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in steel and hand material and like all, all these expenses that go into again for, for a lead time that is a, for something that's six months out. Right. And we're right. making the way we're doing our business. Cause we're not doing pre-buy stuff is uh you know we're sitting here saying it here it is november right and we're, we're looking at like next june like h- how many knives should we make for this drop for this blade and it's like well i don't know like we did this and we do let's let's add you know 20 percent to it and you're trying to calculate and guess but you also don't want to get out over your skis and get too full of yourself and too arrogant and saying like well let's just triple it right you know and, and you know, we're also trying to do a drop every week. So it's not just for June 1st, but then it's for June 7th and it's June 14th. And you're having these discussions and you can't just say, well, triple that one and then triple that and triple that. And like, 
And it's like, oh, we don't have any cash to pay our payroll. Right. Because we just laid out all this money for a something that's six months from now. So right. people don't understand that, that like this is such a slow building process. And, and we also haven't taken some massive investment where you can just dump a bunch of gas on it. And, right. and maybe that would be smart if it works. But if it doesn't work, then. Right. Now what? Now what? Yep. Right. Well, and then if you're getting loans, you know, now you're paying, you know, anywhere up to 20% on that. You know. Yeah, and even with business loans, what people also don't understand is, and I'm, I'm just kind of learning some of this stuff with some of our next moves, is like there's also prepayment penalties, right? You don't just take a loan and then like, oh, we crushed it uh, three months from now. We're just going to pay that loan off. Well, right. there's a prepayment penalty, right? And and a lot of the business stuff is adjustable rate stuff. So like people that were taking loans three years ago are – are, are hurting pretty bad today when those yeah. loans were at three or four percent and now they're eight nine ten percent right yeah a hundred percent you know that that bill goes up quite a bit you but know, guess who pays rate. for it it's it's the consumer you know that's what yep you know so it's 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 just a it's so hard to start your own company yeah and to build from you know where you you have a day job and you're designing shirts and pants um and, and then you're having to make this decision of like, okay, and with you, you're ordering your stuff probably, it's being done overseas, right? So yep. like that lead time, you have to lay that money out and you have to make that commitment, but you're, you're months, if not a year out yep. to get it. It's, it's, uh, it's such a gamble. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely can be. Yeah. You know, and even, I mean, we just resourced everything. The awesome thing is I've been trying to get, I mean, a lot of our customers push for American Made. Which yeah. I'm like, yeah, I would love to do that. And I want to do that. But we finally got to a spot now where we're, we're using a factory and uh, a fabric mill that grows the cotton in the U.S. And so they import the cotton. It's in Nicaragua now. And so it's in like a Central American free trade zone. And so now all the cotton's grown in U.S. The zippers we're using now are all USA made. Um, oh, really? So we're like a step. We're like that one step out from being able to produce it here. So And and people, we, we tried for a while to have all... American made apparel on our website and we finally got to the point. I mean, our knives, we're not going to, we're just never going to go down that road for right. going overseas, but like with apparel, um, you know, I, I wanted like some dry fit material type shirts where you can wear something under your hunting jacket or whatever and sweat and have it dry and not be cotton. And, you know, we just wanted certain things and you just could not find it nope. in this country. Yeah. And, and also I do know a few people that have tried you know, I, I, you know, the guys at origin and it is such a challenge and, and the consumer says they want you to have American made, right. but do they want to pay $110 for a hoodie? Right. You know, do they want to pay 75, $80 for $90 for the shirt you're wearing right now? Right. I mean, I've seen them for 120 now. Yeah. And again, like you, I tried, I met with a few factories here and they're like, we have like can you do this many units? And I was like, I'm doing less units than that overseas. And they're like, we have government contracts. Like you would be, you know, you would kind of be a, a hitch <laughs> or, you know, like you, you would be a problem for us. Like yeah. you, you're not doing enough units to really make it worth our while. Right. So that's the other side of it too. Um, which made things very difficult to try and get stuff made here is they're like, look, we're going after these bigger contracts. Like we can't do small run stuff. And, that's what's sad about LA kind of used to be a hub for a lot of the small companies to do their stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and you would have like the cone denim mills and people like that that would make a lot of raw yardage um, for you to just be able to go buy. Like, hey, I'm just going to buy a couple hundred yards and we'll make a couple hundred pairs of pants. You know, it'd be perfect. Yeah. And those guys shut down, um, which I think is what origin. I think they they bought their their plant in Did North they? Carolina. I think so. I can't remember, but. I mean, we worked directly with those. They were basically, they got to a point where they, they started shutting down the U.S. production and they would just use it for sampling, right? Mm-hmm. But they they told us they could never replicate. The The machines that they had built out in North Carolina were on these wood floors. I mean, they were over 100 years old. Yeah. And so the vibration that would happen during the the weaving would create the inaccuracies in the denim, which gave it that kind of unique quality. Oh, no shit. Yeah. And they could never replicate it. They tried overseas, and, and I mean, they have factories in Mexico and Guatemala, and, and that's wild in China. But you could never get that same. It's called the white oak, their white oak um, denim, uh, selvage denim, and it was just it's just awesome to hear about that stuff. And it was cool. I remember watching the videos of of them buying those old denim mills in in North Carolina, the guys from from Origin, and like hiring the people back and bringing in some, that older generation to teach the younger generation on how to do this stuff and I was just like oh that'd be amazing to be able to to kind of do that and I'm stoked that they're able to to accomplish that yeah I give them credit for what they're trying to do I don't I don't know them real real well but I do you know I have a couple connections to them and and um I mean I give them credit for trying what they're doing I mean it is not easy and I've, I've heard plenty of stories where they're having you know plenty of their struggles trying to make it happen because it is it's an admirable thing to do but it is challenging yeah and they don't have the margins too like you you know you you look at because you don't want your hoodie to be 150 dollars, right you know your margins have to be lower but then you know stores want to be able to if they're if you know well one you you almost can't even afford to put your stuff in a store because there's not the margin right if if you put your your hoodie in shields they're going to want to make they're going to want to double their money on it yep minimum minimum a bigger store like that too they're going to be like not just double you know it's like you're going to also do this, this, and this. So. And then they're also going to want to be able to run at Black Friday their 30 or 40% off sale, but they're not going to give it away. They still want to be able to make their money. Right. Um, and so, and that's where the only, the only real way that, that that's going, that, that American-made stuff's going to work is the direct-to-consumer model. You're, you're just not going to see American-made apparel in stores. Yeah, totally that, There just isn't the room for that margin. No. You um, can't do those bigger runs. No. That it makes sense. You know, yeah. that's those big machines. I mean, they didn't create them to do small, small runs. I mean, it's wild to see the buildings that, especially denim, right? I mean, the yarn even, so denim's such an interesting fiber, but um, the yarn has to go in these baths. You know, it goes in these indigo baths and it goes up and then it oxidizes in the air and then comes back down into another bath. Oh, really? Yeah. And then they hit it um, with a few different things, but it's going through, depending on how dark you want it to be, to like 20, 30 baths. Oh, really? And it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate the yarn. So like that indigo dye sits on the top and that yarn, that core yarn is still that lighter color, which is why as you wear denim it and you abraze it and like break it down, it starts to change colors and get lighter. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. And that's where even like, if you have, it's called crocking, but if you like hold your hands on your denim or like, you'll see when you go to wash your hands, like it's really blue. Like mm-hmm. that indigo dye is like rubbing off on your hands because it doesn't, it just sits on the top. Yeah. Interesting. It's wild. It's a cool. It's a cool fabric. Um, but yeah, those. Why? I'm, why have so many of the jean companies? You know, like I think of the old Levi's back in the day, and like how 
thick and hardy those jeans were like for men who actually like work yep you know you, you wouldn't you it was like hard to tear your pants right sure and now i go in you know I, i'll go into a store and look at different jean companies whether it's wrangler or levi or whoever that's on, on the rack and it's all made for like guys that work in an office yeah <laughs> right well and that's where you know that fabric is so heavy and stiff that it's hard to, I mean, with Carhartt's, the original ones, right? It was, you'd have to break them in before you could even work in them. Yeah. Because they would stand so, up on their own. Right. And so that was one of the problems actually, when I started off the grid, um, because I love that work, like our main pant that I designed looks like a workwear pant. Yeah. You know, it kind of looks like a Carhartt, but I wanted to mix workwear with tactical with outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so like, I took a workwear pant and then I added mag pockets to it, right? Because we would go out in the desert and we would go shoot all the time and stuff like that. And so I never wanted it to be like, oh, I'm going to the desert. I'm wearing my desert uniform or I'm going to the range. I'm going to wear my range uniform and kind of look like a tacta nerd or whatever. And so I just wanted something I could wear every day. Crossover. And functions, right? And so I had to do a little bit thinner fabric um, so and add stretch to it. And then I did um, a pre-bent knee shape, right? So you can add darts so that the knees already bent a little bit. Right? Oh, really? Yep. And so that helps if you're getting in and out of a vehicle, right? Interesting. Yeah. So you always, it, the stretch and the, the knee makes it to where you can, I mean, there's no restriction when you're bending down or doing whatever. Um, yeah. And so I added kick plates to the back. So like a double layer. So when your boots wear in on the back, it won't fully wear out. I added knife patches at the pockets. Um, so as you're pulling your knife in and out, it's not going to wear out that, that side of the pocket super fast, you know? Yeah. I think they, there's like four or five layers of fabric in there. Yeah. So just trying to figure out stuff like that. And that's the stuff. That's why I wanted to do my own brand. Cause if I worked for a big company, they'd be like, ah, well, you know, that details an extra 25 cents, you know, we need the margin. Like we're going to take that off. Right. You know, or that, that rivet, I don't, you know, again, they would just water everything down. Right. Or it got to a point where if you went in a store, like somebody, really, you know, put it this way. It was like, if you went to a store or surf shop and you took all the labels off, would you be able to tell what brand is what? Yeah. You know, and there's a few brands that stand out for sure. Like Volcom was one where they would have asymmetrical panels. They would have to have an asymmetrical panel on Mm -hmm. all their designs. And so you would be able to tell them, I think, but a lot of the other brands, I don't think you'd be able to tell. I mean, if you went an outdoor store, you know, right. Right. And you just took the labels off. No, it's a good point. Do you, so, and are you still fulfilling everything yourself? Yeah. So we, we used a couple three PLs. I yeah. mean, we were burning through three PLs and marketing agencies probably every six months. And I just was like over it. Um, yeah. And we finally had this one that was supposed to be amazing, worked with all these other companies and like, it just was terrible. And so I got a warehouse, brought everything in house, uh, hired a team and they're incredibly better than any 3PL we've ever used. So it's funny you say that because we, we've been debating that because like we're running out of room in our own building, right? And it's like the one thing that would definitely free up some space would be uh, like outsourcing our fulfillment of our hoodies and hats and shirts and sure. You know, Cause they, t- it pallets, you know, that the, the apparel just takes up so much freaking pallet space. Oh yeah. You, Pick you know? face and all that, the different skews you have to have. Yeah. Yeah. And c- colors and, you know, people are like, how come you don't have colors of this? Right. And how come you don't have kids stuff and more women's stuff? And it's like, well, but if I had one women's shirt, it's now six boxes, you know, with 
double X to small and and then like, oh, but you want women's stuff, but then you also want three colors. And it's like, oh, well, there's 18 boxes. Right. And we only have so much space, you know. And But with the fulfillment thing, like we are adamant about trying our best to fulfill by the next day. Yeah. Like 100%. Next day, get it out. And it blows people away uh, how fast they get stuff. A lot of stuff that people order in a normal day-to-day situation, we ship the same day. Yep. Um, and if you outsource that, you know, th- then it becomes an issue of like, well, what if we keep we keep fulfilling our knife orders and you order a, a hat and a knife, you get the knife in two or three days, but then the shirt is a week later. Well, now you've got customer service. And now you got a service. customer service yep. issue because there's somebody emails and says, you forgot to send me my shirt. Yep. And, you know, and so it's just one of those, like, we choose to just offer less and control the the fulfillment. And then hopefully down the road, we can build a bigger facility to fulfill more. But, yeah, yeah, your your customer's experience and then also your your ability to, uh, you know, the, the direct-to-consumer thing, the ability to own your customer's information and be able to communicate with your customer back and forth versus if you're selling all your off-the-grid stuff to a retailer, you never know John in Ohio who bought a pair of pants. Absolutely. Yep. And, and your ability to retarget him, send him an email for how about this shirt or how about this other pair of pants or, you know, here's a coupon for Black Friday or, or whatever. Um, I, I would assume you probably find that when you get a customer, they end up actually owning two or three pairs of pants and two or three shirts. And we found that with knives. Like, once you have a customer, it almost means automatically that they're going to have two or three knives down the road. Right. But if they buy that knife from a retailer, we, we never, if it goes through Cabela's, we never know that person. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the amount of rapport I've built with customers, just, you know, I, I read every comment. I read every, if there's a review, I'll mm-hmm. read it. And if there's something that I see that needs to be responded to, I'll immediately, because I know if I, if I, hold off. I'm probably not going to respond, but I'll immediately click on it, open it up, send them a direct response from me. Like, Hey, I see that you had an issue with this, you know, let's figure it out. Right. You know, or, or this is something we're working on, but yeah, the three PLs, the amount of mistake, because my guys know where everything is. They know what it is. And so, and even how many, we get so many times where customers like, Oh, I put in the wrong address or, Oh, yes, that was the wrong size or, Oh, you know, I just realized, you know, something. And, um, I mean, we had a customer yesterday DM'd us on Instagram and I immediately copied it, forwarded it to our team. They're like, Oh, we pulled that. I mean, that order was about to go to UPS. They were able to pull it and bring it back and, and re reorganize it and get the right size out. Yeah. So yeah, we do that every day and, and it, the customer experience and what it builds, I think for your longevity of your company, like if you do that for the next five years, you can only grow as a company. Right. You know, um, cause they tell their friends like, God, I, I just, I just DM'd them. And in, in three hours later, I get a notification that my order changed or, you know, yep. immediately, like within 20 minutes they had shit changed. And, you know, I gave them the wrong credit card. I gave them the wrong address. Like people do that stuff all the time, all the time. Yeah. People don't realize that, but and then, I mean, going back to the SKUs, like, we, our pants, like, from the beginning, I prided myself on adding sizes that most brands wouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. So, we do 28 to 44 in our main pant waist size. Wow. And then we have 
30 to 36 inch inseams, right? So yeah, on one pant, one style, we have over 140 SKUs between all the colors and all. So that's Damn. 140 pick face, right? For our warehouse guys. But they know the way they've, and they organized the warehouse the way they wanted to. So they knew like best sellers go on the bottom, the ones that are, you know, sell a little bit slower, go up top. And they, they organized it the way they were going to pull from. Yep. And so they know, and they can see, the other thing is we have two fits, right? We have a standard fit and a tapered fit, but they look exactly the same. Yeah. And so they know to look at it. Whereas at the three PLs, they would get a return or they would some, and they would mix everything up. Yeah. It was a disaster. So owning that supply chain and owning, um, the ability to train our guys the way we, we wanted to. And, and to be honest, the way that they felt was the most, you know, accessible. We've found these two guys that are amazing. Um, mm-hmm. just young guys that, you know, just wanted to work. And so just even getting to know them, I, every time I fly into town, I'll, I'll because our, our warehouse is still in San Diego and I live in Texas. Right. So, right. Cause I moved after we had started the business and opened the warehouse. Um, I still have an amazing, uh, operations director that, that lives there, Lauren. Um, and so every time I fly into town, I take them out to lunch and see how they're doing and, and check in on them. I wish I could be there more, but, um, they're just awesome guys that, that get it done. And yeah. they've done, I mean, hands down way better than any fulfillment company could. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I, I'm, I'm all about it. And I, you know, the one thing I wanted to kind of go over is like, I, I beat this American made drum, right? And we're an American made knife company and I'd love to see more factories and more stuff made in America, but like on the, and, and it's, it's this way with us, with our, with our merchandise. And I already said it, it's so hard on the apparel side. Right. But at least if people would support the smaller guy, that's trying like, right. uh, you know, building a knife or building a, uh, a clothing company out of their garage and they're designing their own stuff and they're having input and they're trying to even source some of the material from, um, you know, our region of the, of the world. And, you know, the whole idea of, it, you can't necessarily just expect there aren't going to be a um, hundred origins pop up and you're going to find that stuff in JC Penny. It, it ain't happening. Right. No. And um, you know, if people would just go out and seek out the people that are trying to, to do it themselves and take, and take some of that, take some of that, that business away from like the giant corporate brands that really don't care about you at the very least, like buying from a guy like you, yeah, you're still getting a garment that's made overseas, but you're getting some American stuff in it, but then you're getting the customer service and yeah. you actually get to interact with the owner of the company. You actually get to follow what that guy does on the weekend and you get to converse with them and you get to wear a pair of pants that you know the guy that designed it. Yeah. And that to me is like, you know, I, I sometimes I, I, I have these conversations with people because they're like, well you know, you say American made whatever, but like you also carry an Eberly stock pack and they're made overseas. Right. And it's like, yeah, but I also know it's a, I know Glenn Eberly. I know Casey that works there and I know these guys personally. And I know the guys that are like, they're at least doing everything they can. And it's still small. It's still within Boise, Idaho. They're still hiring Americans within their fulfillment warehouses. Right. Like they're, they're paying their, their, uh, you know, their employees. Well, uh, they give back to the community. They're involved so much more, um, you know, than some of these giant companies out there. So right. it's like, it it it's like sometimes people take it 
almost that message a little bit too literal. The point is, is just try to do a little bit better with your when you're consuming with your dollars. Right. Try to do a little bit more research and find those small companies that are trying and and at least help them. The only way that you're ever going to create an American factory someday is to sell a lot of freaking shirts and pants. Yeah. You, you know, and so like you may never get fully to that way, but maybe down the road you even offer one or two garments that are made here. Right. And the rest of your line isn't like the point is, is people need to just seek out um, those Americans that are actually just trying to build something small from their garage. Yeah. When I think like you even said earlier, I mean, there's some fabrics out there, all the technical fabrics, you can't get them here. Like they don't make them. That's what uh, talking to like the guys at Sika gear. Yeah. It's not, even if you, even if you had customers standing in line with double the money to pay for all that stuff, it's literally not made here. Right. Like to build the infrastructure that it would take to, you'd still have to import all the polyester or all the nylon. Like they don't. The the only way that that's going to happen is, is it's going to take a commitment from our actual government. Right. You're going to have to subsidize manufacturing, whether it's, you know, hard goods, soft goods. Um, You're going to have to help bring it back because we, we let it go. And once that stuff's shut down, I mean, I'm just seeing it on our side of what it costs to build a building that we want to move into. Like, Right. We're learning the building we wanted to build and the building we're going to be able to afford to build are two different buildings. Sure. Yeah. Um, now, if if the government would come in and say, hey, we're going to cut your tax rate by 50% for the next five years if you build this building and hire this many people. Right. We'll give you a grant or whatever. To, yeah. yeah. And tie it to a few things where you don't have people just, you know, soaking money from the government. It would absolutely change our 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 game for us, a hundred percent. You know, um, so that's the only that's the only way. Some of those technical fabrics and and some of that stuff, like the government would have to get involved and say, "What do we not make here?" It's like the chip manufacturing, right? They're right. they're starting to try to bring that back. The only way that's really going to come back is if there's some incentive and some support from the federal government. Yeah, uh, I mean, and again, those facilities that they have to build to be able to even process that stuff and create it it are massive. I mean, they're the size of Amazon fulfillment centers. Yeah. They're huge places. And it's not like for, for us, for example, and it would be this way for you for fulfillment. um, It's not just the building itself. You then still have to afford to buy the equipment to put in it. You have to, if it's for you, for all your pallet racking and forklifts and, and hiring people and all that stuff for us, it's, we build a building, but we still have to buy CNC machines to put in it and all the machines and all the equipment and hire the people to, to work in there. So it's, you know, that, that's the, that's the one thing, like we were looking at the building we want to build and it's like, we could probably build that building. We wouldn't be able to afford to put anything in it (laughs) or hire the people to work there. Just be a gymnasium. Right. Right. Um, so those are the struggles that I just don't think people quite understand. And, you know, here you got a guy that's, started an apparel brand and you're literally borrowing money from your mom to make it happen. Right. But that's, that to me is that's a story that needs told because that resonates with the customer. And they're like, that's a guy I want to support. Right. Like I'll buy a couple pairs of pants from that guy, you know? Well, and that's where, you know, we've gotten, you know, some customers where they're like, Oh, I'll try them out. And then they're like, Oh, these are actually really good. Like, yeah, I actually, um, uh, I'm, uh, part of Ryan Mickler's, uh, group the okay. order man yeah and i um 
he had just said on a podcast, so he's like, I can never find pants that have a 30 inch inseam. And I was like, oh, we make those. So tell him to like, grow. <laughs> right. Yeah, just get <laughs> taller. Um, so I sent it, I was like, Hey, I got those. And I sent him a pair and he's like, man, these are actually awesome. And I was like, yeah. oh, sweet. Thanks. You know, but, yeah. um, I know you guys sponsor, uh, his yeah. podcast, which yeah. is awesome. Great, great group. But again, it goes back to kind of podcasts, right? These, these coaching groups are, are guys that you got to have people around you to help navigate small business, man. Yeah. It is the, the amount of challenges that come up day in and day out and week in and week out. I don't, people really don't understand like with his order of man, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a support network. Like when I, when I got really the true belief that I could make what I'm doing happen was when I was at winter strong at Bert Soren's uh, at Sornex. And it was a group of, you know, almost a hundred people that were there that were all incredibly successful in what they were in, what they were doing in life. And when you hang out around that many people, you realize like, and then you hear stories from people that are like, yeah, I borrowed money from my mom to make this company go. And yeah, I was broke as shit and went bankrupt three times over here and did this, but they all ended up being successful. And you start to realize like they weren't special back right. then. They just, they just kept after it. They kept driving and they figured it out. Most of those people that are that successful just figured it the hell out. Right. And kept going. Yeah. And kept going. And so when you, I, I've said this before, when you live in a, in a small town and whatnot and you're in, you know, I, I love the people around here, but you really don't have a hundred people to go hang out with that have the same mentality. Sure. Um, so like with Ryan's group with order man or whatever, if it gives you 20 or 30 or 50 or a hundred people to bounce ideas off of and to motive, motivate each other and be like, Hey Josh, like keep going, man. Like yeah. get off your ass. I know that was a bump in the road. I know you got scammed by, you know, freaking whoever in India, but like, keep going, keep right. going. And it helps push you to make you realize like, okay, we can, it's just a bump in the road. We'll get through it. Absolutely. And just the accountability to do what you say you're going to do. Right. I think yeah. those groups too, where it's like, I think a lot of people talk about having big dreams, but when the rubber hits the road, it's like, how do you do that? You know, yeah. having a group that helps you break it into these, you know, smaller chunks, you know, what are you going to do in three months? Yeah. You know, what are you going to do next week? Um, yeah. instead of like, oh, I have this goal, I'm going to do this in 10 years. It's like, well, that's awesome, but right. what does next week look like? Yes. What does this this year look like? And they, they really help kind of organize you that way, where it's like, well, let's, how do you break this down into, you know, bite-sized chunks? Because that's the reality, right? Discipline over time, you know, creates something big, like doing small things over and over and over again on a long enough time horizon. Yeah, if you if you concentrate on... I mean, and I've said this around here, like if, if I, all I did was concentrate on where I hope to be someday, <laughs> it'd be way too overwhelming. Right. Like all you can do is what you can do today. And it's, it's eating that elephant one bite at a time. Right. You know, and, and you also have to be willing to give up some control and, and get some help. Right. Um, if you try to just do it all on your own, if it's all about you, <clears throat> um, you know, you know, t together, there's just so much more that can be accomplished as a team. Yeah. You know. Well, and again, like what people see on social media compared to the reality, right, yeah. it is completely different. So I think that's the other issue is people see social media and they're like, I'm just going to be a YouTube star or whatever. Yeah. This is all just going to fall into place and I'm going to be rich. It's just <laughs> we, we tell new people coming in here to work to do like knife tech stuff. Like there's the social media side, there's the hunting side, there's that. And that's, that's cool. And we all do that. And we encourage our people to hunt, but we have to make knives. Yeah. Like you, you. You have to put screws and handles 
we have to make, we're making thousands of knives. Like at some point there has to be people that do the work. Right. You know, and you can make, Henry's really good at making things look glamorous, right? That's his job. It's marketing. Right. Um, but behind that, there's a ton of hard work. Yeah. What is your, what is your favorite thing to design? Do you, do you, do you, what do you get off on, on the apparel side? Is it the pants? Is it the shirts? Or do you tend to mix it up? Yeah, I love, I mean, I love looking at a customer group and figuring out what they need, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, with with our pants, it's, like, I love being in the community and just, like, well, what, you know, I picked so many people's brains for years of, like, well, what if we did this? Oh, well, you know, I carry my, you know, EDC stuff. Like, I carry this here, right? And so, I just love to design, product you know flannels i think are are really fun like Mm -hmm. plaids and stuff like that because mixing the colors together is it's kind of like a mad science Mm -hmm. um that work and the patterns creating the patterns and things like that um are really fun but at the end of the day it's really just creating stuff that people enjoy and it works for them Uh, and hearing them say like dude these are the best pants i've ever worn like i uh, you know i went and bought there's a guy that literally buys seven pairs of pants a year and then throws them away at the end of the year and buys another seven. Really? And it's like, you know, I've talked to him a few times and every time I'm like, how they work? Like, what's your feedback? You know, what wore out, you know, what can I, what can I fix? And it's the, the feedback like that, you know, I, I've said over and over again, especially with old business partners, like I've got way more ideas than we've got money, you know, yeah. like I'd love to be able to create a huge line, like a, you know, some of these larger brands out there because it's just fun to create yeah you know and and um but i mean and it's so cool to see people using your product or see your right like, with you guys see people wearing your shirt or i'm sure when you see an instagram post you're not tagged in it like they're just doing their daily life and you see your shirt on them it's got to make you feel good yeah yeah i love it you know there's yeah i mean there's been a few times we've partnered with some bigger brands and they've gotten it on some of their their you know, bigger influencers and I'll see mm-hmm. it pop up and I'm, I can, I know my stuff like really well. Yeah. Like, uh, the, when I used to work for Quicksilver, their stuff would show up on movies and stuff all the time. And I could see it immediately. And people are like, how do you see that? Yeah. And I'm like, I designed well, my it. Baby. Like, I've been staring at that thing for months, you know, yeah. like that thing's been r- rattling around in my head and like, I've been working on it on the computer, you know, for yeah 12 months straight. So yeah, I know the colors, I know the patterns, you know, pretty, pretty closely. So yeah. So what do you like to do these days? Because, I mean, if you're in Austin, North Austin, you're not surfing. Right. Well, you could go to Waco. <laughs> they have the wave pool. but Do they? Um, man, can, it's you, been... can you really go to a wave pool after you've been a surfer in the real ocean? for? Some of them are pretty good. Are they? Some of them are pretty good. Um, it, I, I don't know. It would feel kind of soulless. Like you couldn't go there all the time because you'd just be like, uh, I need like – there's something about being in the ocean and like having to navigate where the waves are popping up, you know, and, yeah. and stuff like that. But – um, well, I used to mountain bike a lot too. Uh, and there's no public lands in Texas, so there's not really a whole lot. There's a few sp- spots to go off-roading, but I do a lot of stuff when I go to events. Yeah. Um, I try to, right, because I'm out and about. Um, but it's been a lot just spending time with, with my kids. We've gone through a lot of transition the yeah. last couple of years and, and my girlfriend and her kids. So uh, it's trying to get out on those trips when I have an event. Like that's kind of my excuse to go, you know, wheel or go camp or things like that. Yeah. Um, I'll add on time, you know, here and there. 
but yeah, there's, I'm trying to organize some groups in Texas or get connected more in some off-roading mm-hmm. groups. There's some fun spots, but one of the spots really close to me, you have to have a pretty well-built rig to go wheel around. And I'd sold, we had a race Jeep for a little while and I'd sold it, but that thing would have been perfect. Um, and, uh, so I got to re-outfit some of my stuff. We have, a, I have a Bronco, um, that was set up kind of more for overlanding. Um, yeah. and I just haven't done much with it. Yeah. Uh, Cause again, to like, I can fly anywhere really easily, but to drive anywhere from Texas is, you know, you got eight hours just to get out of the state. Yeah. No <laughs> shit. Yeah. I know people think Montana's big and then you drive in Texas, like, holy shit. It's crazy. It's, uh, I've said this, I, I never realized how lucky I was until later in life of growing up in a state that had public land. Right. I actually posted something about it just the other day. There was a, um, they like a block management sign in box and we just take that stuff for granted. But like, you know, people will designate, they'll sign their ranch up or their farm for block management where during hunting season, if you look on your maps and you see block management, it's private land, but you just go sign in and it's, it's kind of on an honor system, right? You go sign in on and you put the date on it, your name and your license plate. And you all of a sudden have 20,000 acres that you can hunt. That's private. Someone's private land. That's cool. Um, and it's free. Yeah. And not only that, but Montana also has just a shit ton of public land. And I just thought that was normal. Yeah. And I started learning like places like Texas and most states just don't have much for public land for people to go and do, which again is really sad that you can't, you know, our kids can leave school, drive their pickup, literally five minutes from the high school and park and, and go mess around on li- quite literally millions of acres. Right. Yeah. Well, and even growing up in California, like we'd bail out to the desert, you know, and you could literally just get your pass for the year. You have like your, your, uh, you hang it from your rearview mirror and you go out and you can just park anywhere in a lot of the spots in the deserts and, and just camp camp and yeah. hang out and go wheel. Um, even the Sierras, right. There's tons of public land out there and just beautiful country that you can just go explore. And, and yeah. yeah, that was definitely a wake up call moving to Texas. And I think it's funny cause there's a lot of Californians, you know, that have moved out there and uh, you can tell they're like Jones and like, they all have, I've seen some pretty good built rigs and yeah. you know, you got to go Arkansas or Oklahoma are probably the closest spots that have some public land. Um, and then there, again, there's parks and stuff you can go to, but. Well, and those rigs aren't exactly made for traveling down the highway eight hours no. either. I mean, you're, <laughs> you know, that's not their, it's not what they were designed for. No, let's take a, a truck that gets 17 miles per gallon and make it 13, yeah. <laughs> you know, by putting 37 inch tires, and, Yeah, you know, adding, you know, a couple thousand pounds of weight and gear yeah. to it. So yeah. yeah, that, that is the other issue. Yeah. But what's your, what's your, uh, like 12 month goal with off grid, you got some new stuff coming out or new ideas. Yeah. So we, again, we resourced everything in this new factory. And so that's kind of been the big push. It's, uh, better fabric, a little heavier, a little bit more stretch. Um, and so we're relaunching kind of the brand off that, off our trailblazer pants. Um, it's been our number one pants since I, since they launched, like Mm -hmm. it's just, everyone loves them. So we had a new color. Um, and then we actually had a women's pant that I did two years ago. We partnered with this girl, Bailey Campbell, who races ultra four awesome family. The Campbell's, her dad is just a mad scientist behind the, the wheel as well. Um, amazing racing family. And uh, we partnered with her and we made a pant because the men's pant originally we two colors, coyote and black, you know, one for the trail, yeah. one for the shop. And so we did that with the women's pant. 
Um, she works on all her own rigs. Like she builds her car, like works on her car. Um, and, uh, so we wanted a pant for women that, that was functional, had real pockets, had, you know, all the stuff that, that you would want. Um, if you were a woman that actually used your gear, actually, you know, went right. out and, you know, you needed some purposeful pants. And, um, so we launched them and literally just an okay response. You know, we probably sold a hundred pairs yeah. in two years, Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe 150. And, uh, I hired a new marketing agency last year and they just reshuffled some of our ads. And there was a photo of this girl actually holding an ax, um, in the pants, um, in this specific angle. And they literally took off. Like we sold out in hmm. six weeks. No shit. Yeah. And I mean, I was like, what the hell? Like we've yeah. had these pants for two years. And so we've been scrambling to get them redone. Yeah. Um, and obviously this new factory is a part of that. And so we have the women's pants relaunching with two new colors as well. Um, so it's been, we've been on pre-order now, um, for about a month and a half. Um, and we're still kind of finalizing production. We, we had a little bit of hiccup. Some of the fabric got creased while they were running it. So working through that and, so with pre-order, then how long do people wait until they get their 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 pants or their shirts? Yep. So we were hoping like six weeks, but it's probably going to push out a, a few extra weeks. So we're mm-hmm. I got to narrow down now. Once we get all the fabric to the factory um, where they can actually do the cutting and sewing, right? Um, I'll get like a better. That's where you really okay. Like all the trims are there, all the fabrics there. They can set up the sewing lines and the cutting mm-hmm. lines. Like sure, you know, it's it's fun to watch them. You know rip through that stuff you know yeah people don't realize they're always like well i got a pair last year and they fit like this and then i got a pair this year and it fits like that and i'm like man you those sewing lines are so huge and there's a different like each color typically goes through a different sewing line that's how they kind of navigate them and uh yeah we give them variants right you're allowed every single spec on the pant has a measurement but then it's also like okay on the waist you can be plus or minus a half inch right like yeah and so uh you know there is some variance you know yeah. when they're cutting the fabric you know it can shift but right uh, they do their best uh, and this factory actually is i mean there's a lot of the big workwear brands work with them so okay. um, we're really excited about about that opportunity to work with them they're they're a great great factory um and the guy actually the that owns the factory has some factories here in the u.s too so we're trying to you know, figure out this is kind of our first run with them. So sure. we're, we're hoping that opens the doors to possibly, you know, doing a full U.S. made product. Right. Which we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, I encourage people to put their money where their mouth is and, and yep. you know, actually, you know, do a little research into, I, I always say what you wear, like when you wear that shirt that you've got on there and you see off the grid, like you are, you are advertising for that company and you're, you're also, uh, you're telling people what you believe in, you know? And so, you know, when I wear this Nosler shirt, like it means something. Yep. And, um, I've just kind of gotten to the point where like, you're not going to see me with a Nike shirt on. You're not going to see me with a Carhartt shirt on. Like I'm going to try to buy stuff. Uh, but you're going to see me with plenty of stuff on this, not made in America. Sure. Done most stuff, quite frankly. Um, but, it's going to be because I know the people behind the scenes. I know what they're trying to do. I know what they're about, what their values are. Like, it's not just about where it's made. It's about who it's made by. Yeah. And, and what they believe in, you know? And so I, I encourage people, um, a couple of years ago, 
I just went through my closet and I just got rid of everything that wasn't, if I didn't know the people or if I didn't know the brand or know what they were about, I got rid of it. Yeah. And I definitely encourage people to do that and check out where, where, where can they find your guys' stuff? Yeah, we're at off the grid surplus for everything. So off the grid surplus.com and then social media is all off the grid surplus. That was the one name I could get with that little tag on the end that, you know, I could get all the social media and, and the website. So yeah. people are always like surplus, like you're not surplus. You've got right. <laughs> right. Like, cool. Yeah. I also don't live, you know, in a shack with well water and <laughs> exactly panels. like I'm trying to run a business too. Yeah. Our whole thing is like, look, we want you to just get off the grid even for the weekend. Even yeah. if you're at work and you go for, you know, a little walk outside in the woods, like just go get off the grid and And it's a privilege. Like, we started the yeah. podcast out talking about how so many people in this, in this country can't. Right. So if you can do it and get your kids out, right? Like get off the grid, off the pavement, whatever you want to call it. Just outside, get out of your house. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, what what shows? Uh, are, is there any shows that you're that are coming up? Maybe I know show season kind of starts in January, at least on the hunting side. Are you going to be at anywhere people can yeah. come see you? Well, we're going. So, King of the Hammers is the first. It's I mean that race is insane. It's they call it like off road Burning Man. So yeah. I think last year they had seventy thousand people on this dry lake bed. Um, it's just north of Joshua Tree and Palm Springs out there in California. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the wildest races. Um, But it's the access you have to like the vehicles, the drivers to the race course. They typically have two helicopters chasing the race the entire time, broadcasting it live on huge big screens. I think they had seven big screens last year that you could go to and and Mm -hmm. watch. Uh, It's insane. Um, That's our biggest event of the year. Um, It's 10 days on a dry lake bed. So it's, Damn crazy for our employees that come out and it's crazy. I love it. I used to go out a week earlier and go pre-run with some of the everybody camping or yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's fully. Yeah. I mean, so they have power. They, they pulled huge generators out there and you'll have power for the week if you're a vendor, but yeah, Yeah. it's trip typically dry camping. So, and it becomes the largest city in that County for the, that week. I know my business partner, Brandon, he's interested in all the off-road stuff and uh, really wants to get us into you know, he's mentioned that one, like wants us to have a booth at some of that stuff and just get into it. Cause a lot of our customers do that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, so we'll be at Overland Expo too. Mm-hmm. That's usually a big one. Flagstaff in May. Um, that would be a great show. Um, the Pacific Northwest one, I think we're going to do again, mm-hmm. uh, this year, which was, it was fun last year. I mm-hmm. wish they did some more this way. They have a Colorado one. Um, and then one in Virginia, but we'll see which ones of those. Uh, I'm still rounding out what shows we're going to do this year. But. Sure. We do yeah. a lot of the races, a lot of, you know, overlanding, a lot of those stuff. Um, and then maybe outdoor retailer this year. We'll see. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, good work. Good work on the company and keep, keep freaking grinding at it. Yeah. That's all I can do. But yeah. appreciate, appreciate yeah. you having me here. Well, so. thanks for coming up. Yeah, appreciate absolutely. It. All right. We'll see you.